Hello and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 4, Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, The True Origin of Species by Robert Felix. Uh, thank you all again for joining in uh, for chapters 5 and 6 today. And as always, there are illustrations in this book. Um, if you can find a copy, physical or PDF, you'll want to get it so you can see them. Um, I'll try to point out where they are in the book. There's been some already um, in charts and datelines and all those types of things. Also, thanks for joining the podcast again. Um, if you appreciate the podcast, um, you know, share it, spread it, you know, introduce it to your friends and family. And if you feel so inclined, you can support it for as little as 99 cents a month. Uh, just go on over to anchor.fm slash prep. And there's a support button and you can click that and for little as 99 cents a month you can help contribute to the expenses uh, of this podcast without with that said let's get right into it chapter five even if fishes hone their adaptations to peaks of aquatic perfection they will all die if the ponds dry up but Grubby old Buster, the lungfish, former laughingstock of the Piscine priesthood, may pull through. And not because a bunion on his great-grandfather's fin warned his ancestors about an impending comet. Stephen J. Gould. Chapter 5. Half a Wing. Remember that old story of the tortoise and the hare, where the slow-moving tortoise wins the race? Mass extinctions work the same way. The race goes to the slowest of extinctions, not the fastest. It is not a crapshoot. It is not lady luck in reverse. At extinctions, the energetic animals, the active animals, the high metabolism animals are always the first to die. They're also the first to evolve continually branching into ever more divergent species while low metabolism animals tend to remain unchanged. The very attributes that serve the active animals so well in everyday life defeat them in the clinch. Top Predators at Risk If, quote, survival of the fittest, end quote, is the determining factor, then a high metabolic rate should insert, ensure survival. The winners should be the fastest, meanest, smartest, most efficient, most ferocious animals around. But it doesn't work that way. Mass extinctions are especially unforgiving to the top predators, said paleontologist Robert Baker in his 1986 book, Dinosaur Heresies. Compare this speedy ammonite to the more sluggish nautilus. The ammonite deposited thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of minuscule, quick-hatching eggs in shallow water, while the nautilus laid only a few eggs in water more than 300 feet deep, says Peter D. Ward, professor of geological sciences at the University of Washington. The eggs then took a year to develop. During normal times, the ammonite expanded like crazy, but at the KT extinction, its speed became its own death warrant. The Nautilus slow reproductive methods made the difference, Ward surmises. Sluggards slip across the boundary. Sluggards of all kinds slipped across the KT boundary with almost no change. Many reptiles and amphibians, including alligators and crocodiles, survived handedly, as did the snapping and soft-shelled turtles. Gill-breathing salamanders coasted through along with the monitor lizard. Same with the clam. 
Most kinds of clams move around very little, and yet they've muddled through life for millions of years with practically no change. Or consider the giant tortoise, the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. The giant tortoise's snail pace evolution gives an eloquent new meaning to the words as slow as a turtle. Suddenly appearing during the Eocene about 50 million years ago, and then suddenly, and then, and <laughs> the only sudden thing it's ever done, the giant plant eater evolved so slowly that all new tortoise species of the past 5 million years can be placed into a single genus. Living in the fast lane. Now compare the tortoise's lackadaisical evolution to that of the duckbill dinosaur. First appearing some 80 million years ago, duckbills expanded at a breakneck speed for the next 10 million years. They evolved so rapidly that seven different genera are found in one small outcrop of the Judith River Formation alone, said Robert Baker. Their success was staggering. Why so vulnerable at the end? How to avoid the duckbill's fate. What's the best way to avoid the duckbill's fate? The best way to avoid extinction? Play dead, be lazy, and don't get too thirsty or hungry. And what's the best way to ensure your death? Be endowed, says Baker, with the highest, most compulsive need for calories and protein. That's why animals who live in the fast lane get hammered so hard at extinctions. They're hungry, forced to come out of hiding too soon. They're bombarded by radiation or eat radioactive food. Low metabolism animals simply wait it out. The race is not to the swift. But how does this apply to dinosaurs? Weren't dinosaurs merely a bunch of dim-witted, cold-blooded, slow-moving reptiles stumbling through life at barely moronic levels? No, no, and no again. Dinosaurs were not stupid at all. With a guesstimated IQ of 50, many of many were as bright as the average golden retriever or chimpanzee. They weren't laggards either. Some dinosaurs could run up to 50 miles an hour. Nor were they reptiles. Many kinds of dinosaurs, says Baker, were birds, earthbound, flightless birds. Not everyone agrees, but Baker dismisses them. Quote, there are still a few of my colleagues, says Baker, who think if it walks like a duck, breathes like a duck, and grows like a duck, it must be a turtle. End quote. But birds eat prodigious amounts of food. If dinosaurs were indeed related to birds, the bigger ones must have required hundreds of pounds of food per day. They weren't prepared for a nuclear attack. They had no granaries or well-stocked food bunkers, bombing raids or not, they had to eat. Dashing into the Holocaust to seek food, they were double whammied, first from the outside by radiation, then from the inside by contaminated food. This is not just idle speculation. Unexplained deposits of uranium are often found near dinosaur eggs. How is it that evolution is supposed to work? One tiny step at a time? Come on, let's get real. You don't cross a huge chasm with timid little steps. You take one giant leap. Small steps are useless. What good is half an ear? What good is half an eye? What good is half a wing? Asked geneticist Richard Goldschmidt at his 1940 book, The Material Basis of Evolution or half a jaw. If evolution works in tiny imperceptible steps, asked Goldschmidt, why do we never find these intermediate stages in the fossil record? Because they never existed. New species do not evolve slowly, said Goldschmidt. They rise abruptly in a process called macromutation. Most newcomers could only be viewed as disastrous, he believed, as monsters. But every once in a while, by sheer good fortune, a hopeful monster somehow adapted itself and lived. 
The rare success of these hopeful monsters, said Goldschmidt, not the accumulation of small changes, is the rear, real motor of evolution. In the 1940s, Goldschmidt's ideas were scorned. After all, who could cause, what could cause a macro mutation? But in today's age of genetic engineering, I doubt that many people on our planet don't understand what radiation can do. It alters the cells that contain DNA, causing energetic changes. In hindsight, it seems so obvious. Put Ufen and Goldschmidt together, and you found what drives evolution. Ufen was the one who thought radiation would flood our skies during your magnetic reversal. Suppose you get zapped by radiation. What next? Depends on how much you get. For 4,000 rads and your nervous system will go haywire in minutes. You'll bleed internally, endure bouts of bloody diarrhea and vomiting, and your blood pressure will drop through the floor. Racked by convulsion-like epileptic seizures, your mental ability will disintegrate. Then you'll lapse into merciful unconsciousness. Then you'll die all in two to three days. Mutant Monsters But what if you live? If you aren't sterile, you may give birth to a mutant. No arms, no legs, five eyes, no eyes. Who knows what kind of mutant monster may pop out? Will it have a horn sticking out of its nose? A leg sprouting from its head? How about a tail? A tail? Don't laugh. Every once in a while, a modern hospital will report the birth of a human baby with an unmistakable tail, says paleontologist Robert Baker. It will be a normal child with all of the expected organs, but when you pick it up, trailing up behind will be a caudal appendage protruding beyond the buttocks for two to three inches. Not just a wispy hint of a tail, either. Some of the tails are bigger than the average caudal remnant of our closest kin, the chimps, gorillas, and orangutans, says Baker. If such a thing can occur in today's world, imagine what a sky filled with the radioactivity could do. Actually, you don't need a sky full. Babies in the womb much more sensitive. Studies of pregnant women from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki areas show that babies in the womb are extraordinarily sensitive to radioactivity, much more sensitive than their mothers. 100 rads in the newborn may emerge with mic microcephaly, reduced brain size, or exencephaly, part of the brain outside the head, or hydrocephaly, enlargement of the head due to excessive fluid, or an anaphthaly, oh boy, <laughs> improperly developed eyes. A dose as low as 25 rads can cause major problems with eye development. 50 rads can cause mental retardation. Although the nuclear war, how would an embryo become subjected to radiation? From X-rays, gamma rays, and ultraviolet rays. Ultraviolet rays don't penetrate deeply enough to affect humans, but gamma rays and X-rays do. And where do we find those kinds of rays? In the same cosmic rays that bombard our planets 24 hours a day. They're electromagnetic waves moving energy from one place to another. Let that sink in for a moment. Cosmic rays, X-rays, gamma rays, and ultraviolet rays are electromagnetic waves. How can we possibly believe that our magnetic field could jiggle around or actually reverse without affecting every electromagnetic wave on this planet? Twisting, turning, realigning with the reversing magnetic field, the potential for nuclear collisions, and thence radiation must be enormous. A single radiation event, no matter how small, can cause mutations. Quote, There is no lower limit to the amount of radiation which will increase the number of mutations, said John F. Simpson in a 1966 Geological Society of American Bulletin. Any increase, said Simpson, no matter how slight, will increase mutation rates by some amount. Mutations can be caused by doses as low as 8 rads. 
That, I propose, is why the fast-hatching ammonite died. It emerged into a world still bathed in the radioactivity. The lethargic Nautilus crawled into the world as much, as much as a year later, escaped the brunt of the attack, and survives to this day. And that's the end of chapter 5. Man has been here 32,000 years. That it took 100 million years to prepare the world for him is proof that that is what it was done for. I suppose it is. I don't know. If the Eiffel Tower were now represented half the represented the world's age, the skin of the paint on the pinnacle knob at its summit would represent man's share of that age, and anybody would perceive that that skin was what the tower was built for. I reckon they would. I don't know. That's a quote from Mark Twain. Chapter 6. Oops. Radioactivity might solve a few other riddles, too. Bones and teeth contain elements of fairly high atomic weight, so they absorb much more radiation than those of low atomic weight. Since bone consists mainly of calcium phosphate that enables radioactive strontium, which is chemically similar to calcium, to be easily deposited in the bone. Maybe that's why bones, horns, teeth, and tusks get elongated, compacted, flattened, fattened, multiplied, and altered the most. Maybe that's why the sea dwellers who secreted calcium carbonate almost disappeared, while those that secreted silica, silicon dioxide, were barely touched. It's not survival of the fittest. Mankind didn't evolve, and neither did anything else. Call it the hand of God, call it natural selection, call it mutation, call it what you'd like. We've been placed on this earth just the way we are, fully formed and fully developed. And that's essentially the way we still we will stay until we get to get wiped from the slate. We may grow bigger, we may grow smaller, but we will not change in any fundamental way until the hand of creation reaches down again. It's the closest thing you'll ever see to biblical sense of creation. It's not evolution, it's creation. It's not evolution, it's trial and error. Oops, sorry about that. Half a jaw doesn't work. Oops, legs on top of the head look pretty silly. Oops, the, it's hard to hear without ears. Oops, oops, and oops. How can we possibly look at the weird ways that our bodies have been put together, stretched and squeezed, and sometimes taken apart again, and not help but wonder, was there a purpose? Look at the horse. Today's horse has one toe, we call it a hoof, but 50 million years ago it had four. Every now and then, a healthy mare with the right number of toes, one gives birth to a foal that has additional toes sticking out beside the hoof. What possible purpose can we ascribe to this phenomenon? Or look at the whale. Modern whales have no hind legs at all, but in earlier times, back when they were land-living predators, they did. Every once in a while, says paleontologist Robert Baker, a modern whale is hauled in with a hind leg complete with thigh and knee muscles sticking out of its side. These Atavistic hind limbs are nothing less than throwbacks to a totally pre-well stage of their existence some 50 million years ago. Now, if we call it great evolutionary advance that man evolved from a fish by growing legs, what do we call it when a whale discarded those legs? An evolutionary retreat? Have we really gotten better or just different? Dinosaur, dinosaurs just look different. Just different, says Jack Horner of the Museum of Rockies at Montana State, Montana State University in Bozeman. Dinosaurs basically aren't any different from animals alive today. They just look different, says Horner. Who could argue that dinosaurs didn't look bizarre? But who could persuade one of those five-story giants that a half-naked, no-horn, glasses-wearing, bald-headed, beer-guzzling, t-shirted, tiny human being 
is it really the one who is weird? Some dinosaurs tromped around on all four pillar-like legs. Others flitted about on two bird-like feet and laid shell-covered eggs on the ground. Yet other dinosaurs were flashers, sauntering around the Cretaceous swamps with an eight-foot-tall spiny tail on its back. The spinosaur must have looked like a walking sexual billboard. Some dinosaurs ate plants while Tyrannosaurus rex ate meat with a mouthful of teeth the size of pickaxes. Other dinosaurs had beaks, eggs, beaks, and webbed feet. Good reason to suspect that dinosaurs might be related to birds, don't you think? Barosaurus <clears throat> could stretch its neck 50 feet in the air. A modern giraffe at full height can reach 18. And a Patosaurus at 55 tons weighed as much as an entire herd of elephants. The average dinosaur, though, compared in size to a pony. Speaking of elephants, an adult Triceratops weighed in at about the size of today's elephant. But instead of a trunk, it had three horns sticking up from its head like a mixed-up rhinoceros. Why three horns? Why not two, or four, or even five? Five horns on its ugly face. Oops, some of them dead. Pentaceratops, Conum, had five horns on its ugly face. Two cheek horns, two brow horns, and one lowly nasal horn. Knowing that radiation can affect bones more than any other body part, no wonder horn configurations can be so varied. A few of those monsters could even fly. Some dragons of the air sported fur on their scales, while others that couldn't fly had feathers. But that's not so unusual. Ostriches and emus have feathers too, and they couldn't fly if their lives depended on it. And some of those flying reptiles were huge. One of the large Quetzalcoatlus boasted a 63-foot wingspan greater than the old twin-engine DC-3 airliner. No ears emblazoned on the rears. Get the picture? With hundreds of genera of dinosaurs already identified and more unearthed every day, you need a computer to track them all. The point is that even if you looked, if they looked absurd, those ancient critters were put together with the same kinds of parts and in the same general order as the animals around us today. They didn't have arms growing out of their heads or ears emblazoned on their rears any more than we do. They weren't all that different. They just looked different. The boom-boom-bellied brontosaur had a tiny head about the size of a horse's, and yet at 40 to 60,000 pounds, it weighed as much as 75 horses put together. Imagine putting a ping-pong ball where your head is. How would you feed 75 horses with one tiny head? especially if they had if the head contained only a handful of pencil-sized front teeth. With chompers like that, poor Brontosaurus probably couldn't even chew. Some dinosaurs had gizzards. The New Mexican Sizemorus had it even tougher. Measuring 140 to 150 feet and weighing up to 180,000 pounds, as much as 225 horses, it too boasted a head the size of a horse's. Imagine, imagine filling your hot tub with a spoon. How did poor Sizemo survive? It had a gizzard like modern-day birds, says Baker, another reason to think birds are related to dinosaurs. It swallowed its food whole, then swallowed rocks to grind the food. The rocks, called gastroliths, ranged in size from a peach pit to a baseball to a Texas grapefruit. Once the rock had served its purpose, the animals regurgitated them in one giant heave. Dinosaur belches, the old timers call them. That's why we find little piles of rocks all over dinosaur country. Utah State paleontologist David Gillette once counted 230 stomach stones 
in one seismoskeleton. skeleton. But there's nothing unusual about gizzards. There's simply one more example of interchangeable parts. Today's animals can be just as strange. Thumb through an old encyclopedia some rainy afternoon when you have nothing better to do, and take a grand gander at some of the peculiar looking creatures inhabiting our planet today. Why does the Nebraskaris have a horn? Why do cows have two? Why does the Javelina have short tusks? Why did mammoths <coughs> have long tusks? What possible evolutionary purpose did the mammoth's tusk fulfill? Mammoth tusks 10 to 12 feet long were common, and 16-footers have been recorded. Sometimes the tusks grew into complete circles and toward each other until the tips actually crossed. <clears throat> but did those tusks serve a purpose? No, they were an oops, a burden with which the mammoth learned to cope. <clears throat> did giraffes evolve their long necks so they could reach the leaves on tall trees? Or did they decide to eat those leaves after they were given long necks? Does the emu have three toes for a purpose? Then for what purpose does the ostrich have two? Did we develop our thumbs to play the guitar? We showed up on this planet fully developed. No, we showed up on this planet fully developed just the way we are. And so did they. Those who were lucky enough or smart enough learned to survive in spite of their handicaps, not because of them. Those who learned to live with what they were given, who learned to use their newfound colors, newfound shapes, newfound protuberances and changes... Uh, changed bones and teeth survived. Those who said, half a wing be damned, if I can't fly, I'll walk, made it through. Those who didn't died. Did we evolve our seven neck vertebrae for a purpose? Then why does the giraffe also have seven? Why does the bat have the same number? Why are the forelimbs of people, porpoises, bats, and horses, which look so different and do so different many things, built of the same bones? It's like an assembly line. Add a part here, take one away, paint this one blue, that one green, put a bigger horn on this one, no horn on that one, and five eyes on the next. No matter, they're all interchangeable parts. It may be a sedan, it may be a sports car, it may be a pickup truck, but then underneath, they're all built on the same basic frame. Seals resemble dogs, and whales resemble cattle. Elephants resemble sea cows, and sea cows resemble modern-day conies, small rodent-like creatures. If each of these animals evolved, where are their intermediate forms? They're not there. No intermediate forms. Quote, All paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of informative intermediate forms, says Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. End quote. Same with humans. As we dig through the fossil record, we push the arrival of humanids back further and further in time. Look at the afar specimen, Australopithecus afarensis. Although the earliest known afar specimen, our first upright walking ancestor, is about 3.9 million years old, it's almost identical to Leotoli specimens, and yet there's a million years between them. A million years with no change. Where is evolution? You see the same story with er everywhere you look. Almost every species on Earth appeared suddenly, fully developed in gigantic torrents of creativity, even the mighty Pterosaur. Flying dragons seem to burst into the world like Athena from the mind of Zeus, fully formed, says Robert Baker. Even the earliest pterodactyls already display full, fully developed wings and the specialized torso and hips so characteristic of an entire order. 
We find so many cases like this, says Baker, that many scholars are persuaded that evolution doesn't work slowly at all. Sometimes evolution speeds up and suddenly produces totally new adaptive configurations. But how could Athena multiply? Asked Stephen Jay Gould. With whom shall Athena, born from Zeus's brow, mate? All of her relatives are members of another species. It seems so simple. Am I missing something big? Why couldn't she have been born a twin or one of a litter? That's how species must begin, as hopeful monsters born with the same, at the same time of the same womb. Then the newcomers learn to cope. But they don't change their bodies to fit the circumstances. They adapt to the bodies they were given. It's not survival of the fittest. It's arrival of the fittest. It's not survival of the fittest. It's survival of those who best learn to live with what they were given. But what created those hopeful monsters in the first place? Geomagnetic reversals. Geomagnetic reversals played important role. The evidence is mounting, says James D. Hayes of Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, that Earth's magnetic field may have played an important role in development of life on this planet. After each extinction, thousands of weird creatures must have appeared as radiation worked its way up and down the ladder of genetic combinations. A few of those will-o'-the-wisps creations survived, but most were unworkable combinations. They died in the womb, or at birth, or had no mate, or were sterile, or were eaten, or who knows. The list of reasons for failure must have been endless. Indeed, fossils of some dying families show an increase in size and an increase in the numbers of bizarre-looking forms right at extinction boundaries. An astonishing resumption of life took place at the start of the tertiary, leading evolution into the kind of experimentation-run riots as geophysicist Vincent Cordelot. Take the Ammonite. Near the end of its long reign, the Ammonite experimented with a variety of shell shapes, said Professor Peter Ward of the University of Washington. Normally shaped like flat spirals, some Ammonites changed to look like snails. Others built long, straight shells. Some grew into huge wagon wheels six feet in diameter or more. Others shrank to the size of a silver dollar. It was a mark of desperation, said Ward, an attempt to find some way to win under the new rules. Apes and humans branch apart. Those new rules were written by geomagnetic reversals. Is it just a coincidence that apes and humans branched apart about five million years ago at the end of at the end Miocene at a magnetic reversal? Or that Homo habilis appeared about two million years ago, according to the Royal Tyrell Museum? in Drumheller, Alberta, at a magnetic reversal, and an iridium spike? I think not. Is it just a coincidence that Australopithecus, an upright walking creature with a man-like jaw and ape-like brain, went extinct about one million years ago at a magnetic reversal? Or that Homo erectus, Peking man or Java man, appeared about 780,000 years ago at the Bruins magnetic reversal? I think not. Is it just a coincidence that Homo sapiens neanderthalus suddenly appeared about 115,000 years ago at the Blake magnetic reversal? Or that the Neanderthal suddenly disappeared about 34,000 years ago, according to Niles Eldridge, curator of the American Museum of Natural History, at the Lake Mungo magnetic reversal? I think not. No. Those sudden appearances and disappearances had to have a common underlying cause. And that common cause, I submit, was radioactivity. Radioactivity either allowed into our planet or actually created by a reversing magnetic field. 
Now let's explore how that radioactivity might have arrived on our planet. Let's explore geomagnetic reversals. And that's the end of chapter six of the book, Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, The True Origin of Species by Robert Felix. Um, thanks for joining us in this episode. Uh, tune in soon for the next two chapters. Well, then we'll talk about, uh, well, the next two chapters, the titles of them are Rulers of the Universe and then Pacemaker of Creation, chapter seven and eight. Just so you know, there's 14 total chapters in this book. Um, so that's what you can look forward to. Um, again, if you enjoyed this podcast, please just share it uh, with your friends and family. And also, if you are feeling so generous that you would like to contribute as little as 99 cents a month to support it, head on over to anchor.fm slash prep, Click the support button and uh, you can do so there. Thanks so much, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.